and in deep sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put righteousness to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare like the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find that Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous is lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And then and again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, O oh, let the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went away, and he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Thank you. You can be seated. Uah, let's pray. Father, uh, you are uh, a righteous God and a merciful God. Sometimes it's hard to understand those two coexisting. You are a God of holiness, a God that demands righteousness and holiness, but a God that is graceful and loving. And uh, there's a large percentage of our Selves, uh, this church uh, community that have grown to hate uh, one side or the other of your uh, those attributes of yours. And you uh, are awesome, and they're missing you because of that. We're missing you in some ways because of that. Uh, whether it's a, a misunderstanding or dislike. Uh, an ignorance to the fullness of who you are. And uh, you confront us today with this passage. And I pray that, Spirit, you will uh, open our hearts to your greatness today. Spirit, uh, be upon us uh, with your word. Uh, break into our hearts and give us a passion and a love for you that is greater than we had before we came in, but also a love for your lost that you desire to bring into your family. Uh, help us to know you in a way that allows us to become better evangelists, better servants uh, to your people, to each other. Help us to understand how much we need you and we need each other uh, to do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this is a, a rather strange passage. Um, it's almost as if uh, Abraham has uh, walked into some type of 
market and has seen God and he and God are haggling over the price of uh, the people who live in these two cities. And there's a lot of going back and forth. Um, it's uh, interesting in, in that way. It's interesting and in this is really the first long recorded conversation uh, or prayer with God we have in scripture um, or in Genesis anyways. Um, and uh, it's interesting because uh, this is probably one of the stories in the Bible that is most reviled in our society today uh, in a lot of ways. The idea of Sodom and Gomorrah is not appealing to many people um, in our culture today, and uh, it is so uh, because of one main issue, um, the idea of a sexual ethic, the idea of uh, what, uh, what are the grounds or the standard to which sex can be enjoyed. Um, and we do not like the idea of there being a standard for the most part. Um, and then the idea that someone would judge someone else's standard is foreign and is not widely held as a good idea in our society. Um, and then the idea that the judgment could be so severe as destruction is the most disliked in our society. And we see in this story, I think, a fullness to God that we tend to ignore outside of uh, our desire for a deep understanding for who God is and what the Bible tells us about who this God is. And so today I want to spend some time on that. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the sin issue, though I do want to spend some time on it here at the beginning. Uh, I've talked about many of these things uh, before, so I'm going to go through it very briefly, but just some background information before we get too far into it. Um, the first part of Genesis 18, three uh, men show up uh, outside of the tent of Abraham and Sarah. And uh, they uh, asked Abraham to come out and they have a conversation with Abraham and they affirm to Abraham that the son that was promised Isaac will arrive next year. Um, Abraham uh, informs Sarah, she laughs. Um, they're older in age. They have a little bit of doubt that this is going to happen. Um, and, and we learn that the three men are two are angels, messengers, uh, and one is Christ. And uh, Abraham is talking with them, and so I'm just going to read quickly um, verses 16 through 20 for you. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his households after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised then the Lord said because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come from me and if not I will know and that's where we pick up where uh, we uh, read where Candace read for us um, so uh, Simon Gorham becomes a, throughout scripture, it's mentioned probably a dozen times. It's a symbol of sin. It's a symbol of the wrath that is poured out upon sin. Um, Jeremiah in uh, 23, 14 says this, but in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. 
They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Um, I think it's it, the sin issue as far as sex goes is a major issue for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not the most important issue, I don't think. Uh, we tend to make it the most important issue sometimes. Um, it is a very important issue. I do not want to make it uh, seem insignificant. Um, but I think we see um, in the words from uh, the, uh, the Lord in uh, verse 20 uh, of uh, Genesis 18, where he says the outcry, the big issue, the major issue. And this is the issue where I think we misunderstand God's judgment, misunderstand God's righteousness, perhaps the most. Um, he says this. Uh, Robert Alter, uh, in a commentary I was reading, he's a famous uh, well-known scholar on Hebrew and uh, um, uh, Israel. And he writes in his commentary, um, says the word outcry here is a Hebrew word that's used throughout the Bible to indicate the cries of the oppressed, the victims of cruelty, violence, and injustice. Um, we read from the ESV, which I think said Abraham drew near. Um, and uh, the word that is typically used is approach, and we're going to come to that, but um, you have this idea of not just the fact that people's sins are relevant to the fact that they're standing against a righteous God, but you have people whose sins are repressive, are deliberately in har trying to harm other people. There is a, a repressiveness to their sin, and so you have an outcry. You have a desire uh, for some type of mercy, some type of grace, some type of salvation. And so um, we see in God's justice and righteousness um, the need for it. Left to our own desires, we harm each other. And it would be unmerciful to leave us to that. Ezekiel uh, 16, 49 expounds upon what the issue was. He says, uh, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. There was a lack of compassion a lack of empathy, a lack of uh, love. Um, but still, we kind of miss some of that in our modern society, um, in our postmodern society. We don't like uh, absolute morality. We don't like righteousness, at least when it approaches upon what we desire. We like it when we want to tell other people how they should act. Um, and so I'm going to go through quickly through this. Um, but basically, any moral standard, the big issue is that any moral standard we feel impedes upon our happiness or our freedom. And this idea is just false. It does not hold true. Um, I think we, we can't believe in that idea of, of a relative morality for a few reasons, only a few of which I'm going to go through real quickly. But the first is um, um, it's just hypothetical again no one really believes it um there is a uh, uh 
I read a story about a professor at Boston College who is a philosophy professor and he was teaching, teaches an ethics class and he starts his first class every semester asking his students about what their views on morality are and the overall majority says, you know, we're relative in our views of, of ethics and morality. We kind of pick and choose. We do uh, what we think is right for us. And he says, okay, so I'm going to tell you my standard for giving grades in this class. It's pretty relative. And that standard is all men are passing and all uh, women are failing. Um, and there's an outcry. And the outcry, of course, is not just, well, I don't really like that, so I'm going to try a different class. Or I don't really like this, I'm going to take my money and go to a different college. It is, that is wrong. You cannot do that. To do that is to actually do wrong. And so he says, well, it, again, if you're, if you're not going to argue with me, or if you're going to argue with me and say that is wrong, what you're doing is you're saying you believe in a higher morality than just your own. Because you're saying to me, mine is wrong. So there is something above each of us that we should be submitting to. And, but if you just you know, said, I don't like it, and you walked out, okay, you're consistent with your belief, but then you can never say to anybody that this is wrong. Which uh, brings us to our, our, our second point. Uh, well, actually, our third point is going to be the evidence, but um, second point is Scripture tells us otherwise. Psalms 19, uh, 7 through 10 reads, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even more fine than gold, sweeter also than honey and the dripplings of the honeycomb. Again, write this down. Psalms 19, 7 through 10. Read it this week. Do you believe it? When you are thinking about what is valuable to you, when you are thinking about what's going to revive your soul, what's going to make you wise, what's going to make your heart rejoice, where do you go? What do you look for? What do you pursue? The Bible tells us it's God's righteousness. It's God's standard that we should submit to that leads us to those things. It makes it very clear. There's nothing else to which to pursue for those things. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10 reads, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept unto judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ash, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man living among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. 
Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passion and despise authority. The opposite of what Psalms 19 tells us is there is judgment and destruction for those who do not accept God's standard, that do not love God's righteousness. Do you believe that? There's a tendency to, uh, uh, when we think about issues um, like marriage, like sex, like any of the new modern ideas that have sort of evolved our ethics over the years about, the tendency is to say, you know, I, I, like this is a, a cornerstone to one's fulfillment in life, to one's happiness, and for it to be made unavailable to this person for this reason um, is unfair. It will make their life less than what mine is because I, I can live in a marriage and this person cannot live in a marriage. Uh, the assumption there is that we need these earthly things for our fulfillment. And Psalms 19 tells us it's God's righteousness that leads us to the joy that we all hope for. If that is not a cornerstone in how you are building your ethic today, if you're going to the Bible and reading it as people need this, and therefore I'm going to find the reason why it's okay, you could be leading yourself and people to the judgment that 2 Peter tells us about. There's real consequences to what we believe and what we choose uh, to deny. There's joy and fulfillment found in one and judgment and destruction in the other. God's righteousness leads us to an amazing place and disobedience leads us to condemnation. We're pretty good at fearing the latter. Um, a lot of people will kind of go through life and build their ethics kind of on, will I, will I feel wrath? Will I be punished for doing this? But we don't have the love for the former that we judge our lives based upon that. Um, uh, Radine posted a link on Facebook today about uh, being able to go up to the observation tower, or not today, this week up to the observation tower over at uh, Tower City, um, which I've never done and I really want to go to. But imagine, uh, I think it's all enclosed, right? Those of you who have been there, it's all enclosed. Um, not all observation towers are like that. Some of them you're outside. Um, and imagine, you know, you are on top of one of those buildings and you knew your desire is to really just go ahead and step off the ledge. And you were to ask, uh, and you were to say, well, you know, I, I think it would be really cool to step off this ledge, but I'm afraid that someone would give me a ticket for breaking the laws of gravity. Um, we don't, I mean, most of us don't need a punishment to really know that this is a bad idea to step off this ledge. Uh, we realize that the law of gravity is a reality and a better way for me to live my life is to just go ahead and stay here on the solid ground. God's moral law is, is that. There's a better way. Um, and there is great uh, benefit to knowing that there is wrath that could come, but we really shouldn't need that. It's better for us. It's good. It's to be loved and cherished. 
the second way is the evidence. Um, uh, one of the first pieces of evidence is, as I've already stated, we argue otherwise. None of us really believe it. We always argue for a morality. Um, the, uh, the second way is we've, we've seen it fail. Um, Russia, obviously, has been a big topic in the U.S. the last uh, year uh, or so. Um, and uh, I am not a big historian, but I've found it fascinating. I've also, I'm, I'm not sure if any of you are, but I'm a fan of some of the Russian authors, especially uh, um which is going to be mentioned in a quote I'm going to read here in a second. But uh, anyways, long story short, I've uh, sort of recently been reading some things about the history of Russia and uh, near, uh, shortly after the fall of the USSR, not just Russia, all of that communist bloc, um, one of the prime ministers from Bulgaria, or the prime minister from Bulgaria, I should say, uh, was in the US in Washington and giving a speech on the place his country was in at this point after the fall what resulted from the communism, from communism, where it left his country, where he hopes it's going to go. Uh, this is a long quote. You're going to see it on the screen. So if you uh, desire, read along with me. But his name is uh, uh, Philippe Dimitrov. And he said this, and I find it incredibly fascinating, and so closely matches Psalms, uh, um, Psalms 19. He, he says, what we need is a return to normalcy in our country, meaning not just to a consensual politics and rational economics, but to a civil society functioning on the basis of a shared moral values. Moral confusion under communism was accompanied by an utter confusion of values and their meaning at all levels of societal activity. People thought nothing of cheating and stealing, there was no faith to lean on since religion and belief in God were considered outdated and unscientific. This state of mind is reminiscent of Dostoevsky's character, Ivan Karamazov, who exclaimed, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. The whole history of mankind has proven that without God or higher moral authority, the things most precious to us humans are often denied us because it is our nature that for true achievement and emotional fulfillment, we need a higher intensity of purpose than everyday concerns can provide. Despite all of this, I look to the future of our people with great optimism. Why? There is a new intense striving of many Bulgarians, especially younger generations, to find the moral foundation of their existence and to rediscover age-old values and ideas, ideals there is a renewed interest in religion, the church, and spirituality in general. Sorry, I took this from an article who added, here's the kick in there. It might be on his, that's not part of his quote. This is much more than a political revolt. This, is, this was a revolt of the soul against soullessness. It may be followed by spiritual enlightenment and a new higher moral imperative. So I, when we think as Americans about the fall of the USSR, USSR, we think of the political, the economic reasons. And um, what was most on this guy's heart was the loss of, of uh, any type of view of God, any type of view of something bigger than us. Uh, 
a spirituality and therefore an ethics, a morality. And he says it led to soullessness, the death of the people's souls in his community. Um, and I think what he means, so, you know, I mean, really for the first time in history, this was a, a country that decided, and um, what became many countries that decided, uh, we're going to be uh, a completely secular society. Uh, there were different religions at the heart of most communities, uh, different views of who God was, but there was always something uh, bigger than them and their community that was at the heart of who their ethics and who they were as a people. And this is our first experiment into it. And he says it led to a, a revolt of the soul, the loss of the soul, the death of the soul. And I think what he means is, first off, there was, the, there was a lack of, of any type of meaning. Um, not that there wasn't an ethic proposed, but the only reason for the proposed ethic was the people in charge thought this was a good idea. That was it. And if you disagree with it, there was nothing greater than you to say otherwise. And so uh, you had a, a country that kind of devolved into a moral chaos, but also you had a country that just devolved into a lack of fulfillment and meaning. Why live? This, the government said live for your state, but why? Well, because we think that's a good idea. And so there was a death of the soul, a death of fulfillment, of life, of joy in their community. Because Psalm 17, or, uh, 19 tells us that is found in God's righteousness. It's found in God. To go away from God is to go away from those things. The last thing that uh, we typically do in our argument um, or two, there's two things, but next one is uh, we tend to pit love and acceptance um, against uh, righteousness and judgment. Uh, God cannot be all of those things. And uh, we've kind of already talked about it, but again, the outcry, there was an outcry of those who were being repressed. There was a call for salvation. And could God, could anyone who was righteous stand aside while one group of people was breaking what is right, breaking from what is right, doing what is wrong to harm another group of people, be merciful and loving if they just let it go on, if they did nothing. We can't have that simplicity of argument. There's a bigger view of who God is. There's a bigger view of what is true. And of course, no one ever believes this either. I mean, they themselves, in their arguments for postmodern views, do so because they think it's good and it will help people. And they are willing to stop people telling people otherwise, and they're willing to go to violence at times. Not everyone does so, of course, but it's a part of where they do. Then the last uh, part, the last argument is it leads to fundamentalism, which is going to lead to hatred, more repression, and violence. 
This is a reality. This is a truth uh, for some fundamental truths. But then we have Abraham pointing us to a different fundamental truth. This is where we're going to jump back into our, our passage today. In verse 22, it tells us Abraham drew near in the ESV, as I mentioned before. Um, others say approach. And again, Robert Alter says, uh, the Hebrew scholar says, uh, the word approach is a technical, technical term. It means to approach the bench, a legal bench. It means to come with a case. It's a legal term. God has invited Abraham to intervene on behalf of Sodom and, and be their legal representative. And so Abraham is coming to God as a lawyer, as an advocate, as a defense lawyer in this instance. Um, and uh, it's fascinating to think of it in that terms because then you need to process his argument. And his argument is, I look at back upon it and I go, yeah, that's pretty standard Christian belief. But Abraham doesn't have the scripture that I have. And where he got to this point, I'm not certainly entirely sure, but it's fascinating to see it come out. And so uh, the case begins, okay, so who, let's, who is he making a case for? So uh, his nephew Lot and his family live in there. We read in Peter, Second Peter about how Lot was saved from that community. Uh, but Abraham didn't know that was going to be the case. Uh, and Abraham doesn't simply pray for Lot, doesn't simply pray for Lot's family, those he's connected to. He prays for everyone in that place, he says. Uh, Will not the righteous of a few stand as a substitute for all the unrighteous? Save the place is Abraham's petition. Um, again, this was a repressive, oppressive group of people. And there's no one left out of Abraham's prayer out of his petition. Then what type of case is he making? Um, it's not a case absent of law. Right? He says, if the righteousness of 50, if you find 50 righteous there, will you not spare the whole place? The righteousness of 40, of 30, of 20, of 10, will you not spare the whole place? Right? He's appealing to righteousness, a love from God for righteousness. What can the remnant of the righteous who are there be enough to stand for the whole place? So he understands there's a law. He understands God loves the law. Does God love the law carers, the law upkeepers, the law doers enough that he would save even the lawbreaker? He's not asking God to just forget the fact that people broke the law. Yeah, they broke the law, let's just move on. No. They are lawbreakers, but is there law upholders in this community? And you so love that their righteousness can be imputed upon the whole community and they can be saved. Tim Keller, in uh, his sermon on this, said this. I believe it might be on the screen. It's a rather somewhat longer of a quote, so you can read along if you so desire. Um, he says, Abraham is saying, is my only hope my own record, or does the righteous 
this loving God love righteousness so much that the righteousness of someone else can save me? Yes, so great, so preponderant is my will to save over my will to punish that I can love the righteousness of a few and with it cover the unrighteousness of the many. Abraham is looking for that, and that's an amazing thing. Abraham has gotten a principle. He's not saying, oh, Lord, let these people off. Forget your righteousness. No. He's saying, could the righteousness loving God so love the righteousness of a few that those with whom the righteous are in solidarity, could the righteous few cover the unrighteous many? And God says, yes, yes, and yes. Which leads us, I think, to one of the big questions probably anybody who's really spent time in this scripture uh, would ask, which would be, why did Abraham stop at 10? He talked him down from no righteous. I, I mean, did, uh, he, there was no way out. Got him to 50, to 40, to 30, to 20, to 10, and then Abraham's like, all right, we're good. But we weren't because Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Why did Abraham stop at 10? Um, one of the things we see throughout this scripture is, you know, Abraham constantly in fear going to God. Like, can, I, I, I want to ask one, can I go one more? And we, of course, know that there's this, in this society, there's this real fear of God. Real because people have been destroyed by God. And here is Abraham not just being in the presence of this God. But petitioning, going back and forth with God over the salvation of the unrighteous. And I think there's a fear. Um, it's also possible that as he grows, as each time God says yes, he realizes the heart, the love, the goodness of God more and more and realizes I'm not going to find anybody there who has the righteousness enough to be that substitute. Maybe that's why it stops at 10. I don't know. We're not told. What we do know is that Abraham is putting himself in a position to be hurt, both by God and by the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes into the presence. He approaches God and tries to haggle, tries to negotiate, tries to work with God for the salvation of people. A righteous God who demands only righteous people approach him. He put himself in a place where that he could be hurt because of that. And again, the people that he was trying to save were people that were not good people. Repressive, oppressive, hurtful people. There is no promise to Abraham that if they were spared, they wouldn't hurt Abraham, Lot, or any of their family. And this points us to uh, the idea, a priest is someone who goes on behalf of, who goes in petition for. And that's kind of Abraham's our, our second priest, our first. There's a guy named Melchizedek. I don't, Melchizedek, I don't know if you all are familiar with him. 
kind of a shadowy mystery figure that shows up in the Old Testament and isn't mentioned in the New Testament at one time. He's the first priest that we know of in Genesis, and Abraham's the second one. Uh, but Abraham's the first one that we know in great deal about. And we have Abraham as a priest uh, going in petition for these people, and he does so based upon the righteousness of God, and he points us, therefore, to our high priest, our righteous priest, Christ. Because the gospel is, yeah, there is no one righteous enough to stand before God and say, I, well, first, I am an, I, I've lived a life worthy of you, and you should accept me. And therefore, certainly no one who can say, I've lived a life worthy enough, therefore you should accept everyone else. Until Christ comes along. And he comes to a people who are oppressing, hurting each other, are living selfishly, are denying the very value of the life of those they surround themselves with because all they care about is what they can get from them. He comes to them and he lives a righteous life, not simply to say, see you fools, this is what it looks like. Not simply to say, see, now you all need to know that you have wasted your life. You could have been like me. No, he comes because he knows we can't be that for ourselves. And he is both a righteous God, a God of justice, a God of love, a God of forgiveness, of mercy and grace. And so he comes and he lives a righteous life amongst the people who hate each other and hate him because he knows that hate for him is going to grow to the point where they're going to kill him. Abraham put himself in a place where harm was possible. Christ put himself in a place where harm was certain. And he did so because he could live righteously. And we would put him on a cross. And his righteousness can be our atonement, can be imputed to us, can be given to us, and can be our salvation. Because a God so loves righteousness and so loves his people that the righteousness of this one can be enough. He's not going to forget the fact that we're sinners. He's not going to forget the fact that we have broken the law. He's not going to disregard the law. We serve a God who is just, who loves order, who loves peace. But he's a God who's going to give himself as a righteous sacrifice for us and everyone. We have this great prayer uh, that Abraham has with God that point us to this truth. Hebrews 7, 23 through 28 reads, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. 
Christ lived perfectly. He has lived perfectly forever. And he came here and lived perfectly, fully man, fully God. He died and he went back to the Father after his resurrection in a bit of time here on earth. And he intercedes forever. As Abraham went near to God to make his case, Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father for eternity, making your case, which is my righteousness is enough for that person. Forever. You're going to see by, be seen by the Father as the righteousness of Christ. Your sins are real. They hurt yourself. They hurt people. But because of the righteousness of the Son, of the One, you have been given salvation. There's, I think, three kinds of people in this world. The immoralist, the moralist, and the Christian. The immoralist hates the law of God. He despises it and says, let's get rid of it. It threatens our freedom. It's oppressive. The moralist says, I admire the law of God. It's right. It's wise. But I'm scared of it. It burdens me. It always makes me feel guilty. It always condemns me. It always makes me feel insecure. And Christ comes along and says, no, in me, real freedom is found. In my righteousness, my righteousness is greater than gold, sweeter than honey. You can find nothing greater than it. But I know that's too much for you to bear. And I came. I took your guilt upon myself. And I desire... A, if you come to me to intercede on your behalf and give you life. Religion stresses, uh, Keller had this quote on his Facebook page the other day, I saw it and fit perfectly. He says, religion stresses holiness over grace. Irreligion stresses freedom over holiness. Christianity is freedom through grace that leads to holiness. Christianity is freedom through grace that leads to holiness. We don't disregard righteousness. Injustice should be fought against. Justice is important. Oppression shouldn't continue. God doesn't design it to continue. He hasn't stopped it fully yet. But he will because he loves righteousness. And righteousness is a beautiful thing. But through his grace... We get holiness and freedom and joy and life. Both the modernist or the uh, postmodern or the um, before our modern societies um, or both the moralist and the immoralist are left to find life in some way. And typically they do so through this world. And we, the last part of our gospel is... The fact that there will be a new kingdom, a new earth for us. And so we don't fight for the perfection of this world. We are perfected here in this world to point people to the perfecter, to the one who makes us holy. But they can only fight for here, which is where the flaw of fundamentalism can come about. 
have to make this world perfect. Life has to be found here. We live for a different kingdom. We live for a different home. And so we are free to live here with righteousness, a demand for holiness, but a grace and a mercy and a love. Yeah, we're fundamental, but we're fundamental in the belief that we all need Christ because our unrighteousness has left us in a place that is not good for anybody. And so we don't battle sin with hatred. We don't battle sin simply to change behavior. We don't battle sin out of an agitation or a need for something for myself. I don't need those things. God's anger is enough. God's righteousness is enough. God's love and his mercy can be made available to everyone through his son. And just as Christ gave his life, we too, as remnants here of righteous people, give our life to those who need it. The oppressive, the repressive, the ones who are harming the most people. No one is off limits to who we could, who could be called to give our life for. There's no sin too great for us to be able to look at them and say, I will not pray for this person. I will not give my life for this person. So just some things. What do we need to do now? One, pray for the lost. I think there's three things that come about really important for us to understand that come about as we pray for the lost. First, as you pray for the lost, if your prayer has any depth to it, it's going to point you to a righteous God. The God who gives his life for your salvation. It's going to remind you that forever Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding on your behalf. Forever he's drawing uh, you to holiness or will have completed your act of holiness and will move you into a, a kingdom where everyone around you is holy. That you were built for another world, another home, another kingdom than here. That there's no sin that you're going to commit going forward that can separate you just like there was no sin that you committed before that stopped Christ's righteous salvation from being your salvation. Righteous sacrifice from being your salvation. It's going to remind you of how great his righteousness is and it's going to remind you of how lost our friends are. Until we really believe that God's righteousness is great and that apart from it, people are truly, deeply lost. We're not going to be passionate evangelists. So this, lastly, I think it's when, when we bring someone to God, it's going to grow our love for those people. Because one, as I said, it's going to remind us of how lost they are. But two, I think Abraham's love for people grew after this conversation with God. We 
can see that he already loved him. This is actually the second time that he went on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. He saves them once before, previous to this, in a different set of circumstances. Um, but I think as he wrestles with God, he's, he's growing in his, his care for these people. Right? I, I think 50 might have been enough at one time. And he might have been willing to say, yeah, but it's just 50. I mean, if they can't find 50, that's okay. But I think as he grew in his knowledge of God's love, his love for people also grew. And so it's really important that we go in prayer. But also, sometimes the answer is going to be, okay, so go and do this for this person. I don't know what it might be. Share the gospel, love them in a certain way. God is going to answer our prayers in, in ways that sometimes require action. And if we don't pray for them, we might not hear it. Um, the last uh, part that I want to talk about today is uh, it's important for us to do two things. First being, um, we need to help each other grow in righteousness. And we need to pray for each other to grow in righteousness. And um, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, um, Jesus uh, came and said to them, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our power, our ability to do evangelism is in God, not in ourselves. No matter how much we have come to know God to this point, if we are not growing in him, if we are not righteous people going forward, we step out of God's authority and we evangelize on our own. And that does not lead people to God. The first thing you can do to really love people is to love God. If you're not loving God, you're not loving people. Also, John Stott, um, another longer quote, and we're going to be finishing up here. Uh, one of my f uh, favorite writers, authors, he's a, a famous uh, British uh, pastor. He writes this. The invisibility of God is a great problem. It was already a problem to God's people in Old Testament days. Their pagan neighbors would taunt them, saying, where now is your God? Their gods were visible and tangible. But Israel's God was neither. Today, in our scientific culture, young people are taught not to believe in anything which is not open to empirical investigation. How then has God solved the problem of his own invisibility? The first answer is, of course, in Christ. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. No one has ever seen God, but God, the, son, the only Son, has made him known. John 1.18 that's wonderful, people say, but it was 2,000 years ago. Is there no way by which the invisible God makes himself visible today? There is. No one has ever seen God, 1 John 4, 12. It is precisely the same introductory statement, but instead of continuing with a reference to the Son, John continues, if we love one another, God dwells in us. In other words, the invisible God, who once made himself visible in Christ, now makes himself visible in Christians. 
if we love one another. It's a breathtaking claim. The local church cannot evangelize, proclaiming the gospel of love, if it is not itself a community of love. Without each other, pointing each other to righteousness, pointing each other to God, without each other, loving each other, being in a community together, doing life differently than the world does it, we will fail as evangelists. We can't do it. Our community is important to the lost. We need to be a people who takes God's righteousness seriously, celebrates it, affirms it, finds our joy in it, and shows the world a remnant of that joy, that righteousness. People who's merciful, loving, forgiving, pointing people to Christ as their atonement, as their sacrifice. We need to be a people who prays, cares for our lost friends, who does life together, that points each other to God's righteousness, that helps us to grow together and does relationships in love as sacrificial, selfless people. Let's pray. Father, you, you are a great God, a God of great depth. I pray today that you help us to understand your fullness even more. Help us to fall in love with your righteousness, with your law. May our joy in this world be attached to that. May people so realize what makes us full, your law, that they dwindle in the hope of the things of this world for that. Give us a love for the lost, an appreciation for their lostness, that, that they are standing in judgment, heading to destruction. Give us an empathy, a heart that Abraham had. Help us to give our life as Abraham Help us to love each other, to point each other to your righteousness so that we can go as evangelists in your authority, in you. That we can live a righteous life that is different than this world. And that we can love each other in a way that helps the world to see you. Help us to be a church of prayer that's praying for each other and praying for the lost. In your name we pray. Amen.